right, in the last video I discussed how a purely private education was the American way and how it worked. And I mentioned that this was the norm up until about the 1830s, really even beyond that. And we ended that talk with the question, why did it change? How was the high level of freedom and individual responsibility lost? How did a once completely free aspect of life come to be dominated, dominated by government mandates and taxation, which is, of course, government confiscation of private property? We mentioned how some people claim that changes in society necessitated legal and governmental reforms of education. Uh, for some reason or other, upswings in technology and mechanization and the Industrial Revolution and a few other things just changed the face of society so drastically that the only way to bring the masses of common people up to speed was for government to intervene, begin to redistribute wealth and uh, wealth with which to provide public schools. All right, does this argument have any basis in fact? Only to a very limited extent, and the truth involves a whole lot more than that. The truth involves several factors that pertain mainly to elitist influences being imposed for the benefit of those who imposed them. We'll cover four of the most important social factors involved. The first one was a rival religious ideology. Second, reactions to massive immigration in the late 1840s and forward. Third, the forces of big business. And fourth, the promise of, quote, free education in the sense of no financial cost, that is, to the masses. So let's look at what I mean by these. First, and probably the most important, the rival religion. Okay, this was the influence of Unitarianism, particularly through New England congregational churches, and mainly by the work of Unitarian activists. Okay, these individuals had abandoned many traditional Christian doctrines, and instead, in the place of that, promoted the ideals that mankind could be perfected through proper education, through proper training, through external means, and they believed in the essential divinity of mankind, and they believed that this divinity of man was the most profoundly pronounced when mankind was considered collectively as a whole. So therefore, based on that belief, they believed that the civil state was the highest expression of divinity on the earth. And from that, in turn, uh, they believed that the state was the ultimate parent, the ultimate benefactor of the individuals within that collective. All right, now perhaps the most important figure of these types for public schooling was a so-called father of public schools in America, Horace Mann. Mann was a Congregationalist minister, uh, believed very strongly in all the positions I just stated, and much more. Mann argued that human rights derive only from nature. And this nature, that is with a capital N, he interpreted this, quote, proves an absolute right to an education of every human being that comes into the world, end quote. Okay, now this is a classic entitlement mentality, which has characterized leftism, communism, socialism, etc., cetera, uh, before and since. And in fact, today it's even often applied applied to health care, uh, to things like employment, etc. Well, here, early in the 1830s, Horace Mann applied it to education, by which, of course, he meant public education. Now, he argued two basic propositions about education, and they were these. Number one, education should be secularized, 
that is uh, geared toward civic virtue, efficiency in society, rather than religious worldview, which we just discussed earlier. And secondly, education should be the function of civil government, not families, a complete flip-flop of everything that had been up to date. In fact, he sought to replace the family with uh, an explicitly paternal state. And in regard to that, he called society collectively a, quote, godfather for its children. And he even said that Massachusetts had a, quote, parental government. Okay, Unitarian activists were a large force during this time, uh, just like Horace Mann. Uh, and, and they were all ready and willing to employ government force in order to remake society according to their mandates and their means. Uh, and in fact, government force was the name of the game. Uh, without it, they didn't have a program. Uh, and some of the guys in this movement, by the way, were fiercely radical with this belief. Uh, in the mid-1850s, uh, the radical revolutionary John Brown committed several acts of violence and in fact outright murder in Kansas and in Virginia all intending to start a slave rebellion that he thought would eventually bring about abolition. And the underlying belief in all that was that it is legitimate to use violent revolution to impose better social values. Uh, in fact, shortly before his death, by hanging, Brown himself made this point very explicit, and this is what he said, quote, that he was quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. And in fact, he added very much bloodshed. Okay, the man was a terrorist. He was born and bred on American soil, carry out acts of terrorism on American soil in the name of social and political change for the better. Uh, now, Brown himself studied in Massachusetts to be a Congregationalist minister, uh, although he did quit, and I think it was because of financial or health problems or something like that. But uh, he established many radical connections while he was there, and these were the guys that later financed everything he did. And in fact, the least publicized aspect about this American terrorist Brown is this. The six main financiers who also propagandized his work in New England were all six Unitarian congregational ministers. And while not every one of those types in that movement believed in open revolution and violence in the way that Brown did, Nevertheless, they all believed in using the force of government to bring about the social changes that they thought were desirable, which is really not much different if you think about it. Okay? It's comparing one version of unwelcome coercion for another, and in both cases, that coercion and those changes are imposed by someone who thinks they know better than you and who believes they have the right and the authority to impose their view on you by force. Okay, man certainly held those positions in regard to his agenda for imposing public education. And he had three basic rules. I'm going to talk about these just briefly. And they summarize his view of education as a right, which required property to be socialized and individuals to be subservient to the will of the collective uh, as represented by the decisions of the state, the civil government. Okay, and here's what he wrote. He said that the successive generations of men taken collectively constitute one great commonwealth. So not only were uh, uh, society living to be considered in the collective, but we also had to consider all of future society in that collective arrangement as well. And then based on that idea, he goes on to say this. The property of this commonwealth is pledged for the education of its youth. 
up to such a point as will save them from poverty and vice, and perhaps to prepare them for adequate performance of their social and civil duties. Now, note the language of salvation there. Okay. Public schooling required taking people's property for the education of society's youth in order to, quote, save them. And save them from what? Quote, poverty and vice. Okay, so here you have not only a messianic state, but you have America's first state imposed, imposed war on poverty. And it had no greater effect then, by the way, than it did under Johnson in the 60s, but that's a whole different story. Notice also that this property would be taken toward this goal, quote, up to such a point as will save them. In other words, these people were going to keep taxing and keep taking until they felt they had fulfilled their mission, which is to say there's no limit. Man concluded, uh, based on all that, by expressing what we could only call today as socialism. And he said this, quote, the successful holders of this property are trustees bound to the faithful execution of their trust by the most sacred obligations and embezzlement and pillage from children and descendants have not less criminality than the same offenses when perpetrated against contemporaries. In the public schooling worldview, you see, you don't own your property. You can never be a property owner, but only a trustee for the property of society. It is society that determines who will get what and for what purposes. And any resistance to the government's dictates in this area is considered a crime of embezzlement and pillaging, which, by the way, are both crimes by definition that are done to other people's property. So note again in, in all this, by the way, the religious language. Payments for taxes for state-run education are called, quote, the most sacred obligations, which require, quote, faithful execution. Okay. Now, the alleged natural right which entitles every human being to an education is so sacred that it transcends the biblical command protecting private property, in man's view. And this is exactly what he said, Quote, quoting again, uh, No one man, nor any one generation of men, has any such title to or ownership in these ingredients and substantials of all wealth that his right is invaded when a portion of them is taken for the benefit of prosperity, or posterity, I'm sorry. In other words, we're going to tax you for education, and you'll pay the tax, and you'll shut up because you have no right to complain about it. It's not really your property to begin with. And all we're doing is for your own good and for the good of posterity. So make this note. Public schooling from day one was incapable of existing without socialism. It requires, by definition, the government to claim ownership over at least a portion of every individual's property. And yet this was constantly sold to the public as something for their own good. One of the leading figures in that movement in Pennsylvania was a man named Thaddeus Stevens, and he used this very argument to defend Pennsylvania's public schooling law of 1834 when it was under threat of being repealed the following year. In this legislature, 
he, uh, he said this, to those who objected, by the way, that it was morally wrong to tax someone to pay for other people's education. And this was his response. He said, quote, it is for their own benefit inasmuch as it perpetuates the government and ensures the due administration of the laws under which they live and by which their property uh, and lives are protected. So you see, the paternal state knows what's best for you and what is the best use of your money. And besides, uh, such measures are for the perpetuation of government. Uh, and that government knows everything better than you do, so who could be against that after all? Besides, isn't it, uh, it's not ironic at all that we're going to uh, perpetuate the government that's going to protect your life and property by taking some of your property to pay for it. Uh, nevertheless, that is one of the dilemmas we have to face. Now, man made his views very explicit on this regard. Uh, public schooling was the path to social salvation, and he was quite open about it. All ills in society could be, could be cured simply by the full implementation of public schooling. And this is what he said, quote, The common school is the greatest discovery ever made by man. Other social organizations are curative and remedial, but this is a preventative and an antidote. They come to heal diseases and wounds, but this to make the physical and moral frame invulnerable to them. Let the common school be expanded to its capabilities. Let it be worked with the efficiency with which it is susceptible. And nine-tenths of the crimes in the penal code would become obsolete. The long catalog of human ills would be abridged. Men would walk more safely by day. Every pillow would be more inviolable by night. Property, life, and character held by a stronger tenure. All rational hopes respecting the future. Brightened. Okay, this is language of healing and of hope. If this is not language of religion, I don't know what is. And yet man was wanting to impose this by the power of the state. One of the scholars who studied the history of this state takeover of education noted what action step man really had in mind here. And it was carried out, by the way. And it was the same thing public schools have said ever since. Say, give us the money and we'll make it happen. And our failure thus far is your fault in that we've received insufficient funds. Let it be fully exercised. And of course, man, like most public school advocates ever since, uh, have uh, believed that the school and its parent state had a right and entitlement to appropriate those funds from private people. All right. Overrun by Unitarian thought. Massachusetts was the first state to create a state board of education, and that was in 1837. Now, as its first chairman, they placed Horace Mann. Now, of interest here was the timing of the creation of this secular board. Up until 1832, the Congregational Church was an established church in that state, which meant, of course, that it received funding from the state through taxation to pay its ministers. And, of course, I'm not defending that. Uh, but in 1832, they abolished that, and Massachusetts was the last state to do so, by the way. And the state-funded education program was then put in place within only five years. And when it was put in place, and man put in place of the chairmanship, he brokered a political deal that immediately doubled the budget for public education. So common schools, by the way, were already being funded in Massachusetts by local taxes in, in many places. And, but this was the first centralizing of it at the state level. 
All right. Now, the astute observer will note that many public school critics, uh, what many public school critics have noted up to date, and that is this. The established churches were kicked out under the ruse that we don't want any established church, but then the public schools were made immediately the de facto state church in their place, uh, but were now officially secularized. It was a secularized state church. And the tyranny was then doubled because the amount of money appropriated for that purpose was doubled. Okay. Now, this ideal of secular public school as a new established religion was expressed not only by the facts of history, not only by my analysis and analysis of, of critics today, but it was expressed openly in the statements and writings of all these guys at the time. And in fact, the attitude lasted well into the 20th century, openly, and it exists still in the minds of many people today, uh, Christian or not. Now, uh, one representative of, the, of that of that position was a figure who stated it very explicitly, and his name was James Earl Russell. Now, he was the dean of Columbia Teachers College for about 30 years, beginning in 1897 all the way up to 1927. And according to him, uh, as he wrote in 1922, the task of education was, quote, to make democracy safe for the world. And this meant, quote, teaching the proper appreciation of life values. In fact, uh, as he goes on to say, the doctrine that all shall get what they deserve presupposes that the largest possible number shall be taught to want what is right that they should have. In other words, democracy is going to be great so long as the schoolmasters and the public schoolers can first train people on what to want and how to vote. So if you put that more succinctly, they're simply saying, you can have whatever you want in your life as long as I have control over what you want. So go figure that out. Okay, now with that idea of democracy in place as his ideal, Russell then goes on and makes it pretty clear that he, he believed in the replacement of the church by the, by the public school. And as he wrote, he admired this era in which uh, this type of people would be trained in a trained democracy, and they will, quote, find it expedient to substitute for the established church of the world uh, of the old regime, a state-supported and state-controlled school system. Now, of course, the state-controlled system was the total antithesis of the free and private systems which had existed and served America for over two centuries up to this point. And Russell knew that, and every, all of his cronies knew that. And nevertheless, they just called it progress. Now, before, as we mentioned uh, previously, Teachers were private, a private affair. They had to compete with each other. And, of course, this bred greater choice, improved equality, it lowered costs. Uh, but socialists like Russell couldn't have that, and so they demeaned it in print and in every outlet they could, really. And this is one thing he said. He said, quote, the teacher back then was sold on the open market like chattel. And instead he praised his system in which, quote, the teacher as a civil servant whose foremost duty is the promotion of the welfare of the state, was in place. Okay. Now, he did get one thing right when he called this scheme of his, quote, a new conception in American life. It certainly was. Not only was the civil state never meant to be a factor in education in the original American way, but the very conception and practice of civil coercion and the socialism necessary uh, 
that went along with it was an outright rejection of the American way. It was a rejection of freedom. Uh, it, it was a ge- rejection of freedom in traditional religion, in property, in business, in family, all of which had to be overturned and or replaced in order to impose the grand scheme of state-supported and state-controlled education. Indeed, it was nothing less than a secularized replacement of the established church. Now, there was at least one religious group that saw clearly what was going on, and within just a few years of it beginning to get rolling, they started their own private schools. Now, I already mentioned how this was going on with the Catholic Church and the the Lutherans and the Dutch Reformed. It was especially pronounced under the Roman Catholics, and the rise of Catholic parochial schools coincided just right behind the rise of secularized Unitarian public schools. Uh, from which the Catholic schools were made to be havens. Okay. Now, why did that take off so fast? One of the reasons it became viable for them financially uh, was due to the second major factor I want to talk about, and that is mass immigration. All right, now much of this immigration came directly from Irish Catholics who had fled the Irish potato famine beginning in, say, 1845. In 1825, for comparison, there were only about 5,000 Irish people in Boston. By 1845, that number had multiplied six times, and there were about 30,000. And at that point, they made up about 30% or more of the population. Okay. These people saw the imposition of government schooling as a secularized version of what was formerly Protestantism. They understood it, and they started their own schools. Okay. And this was true of most of the other early immigrant groups as well. As I mentioned, most of them came from Northern Europe and were uh, either Lutheran or Dutch Reformed. All of these groups started private schools so as to avoid the secularized indoctrination of the public school system. And these denominations, as I said in the first talk, still have those traditions visible today. But many of the Americans, particularly the Unitarian-minded Civil religion types hated Catholicism, and they saw immigrants as a threat. And so they tried to use the force of government to impose their version of the state church and their version of American culture on these people. Okay? To them, public school was not only a means of perfecting mankind and curing society of all its ills, it was also a means of turning immigrants into good little Americans. And over time, uh, the, the pronounced secular religious language uh, in that kind of fell more to the background and a promotion of kind of a basic civil Americanism became the thrust of public schooling. Now, of course, the America these establishments was promoting was already a long way from the America that had once been free. But throughout this whole process, many Orthodox Protestants just simply accepted the facade of Christianity that was on top of this Unitarian-driven school system, which was anti-Christian to the core. And thus, the, and thus they always retained this idea somehow that our public schools are Christian. They were not. They were never. They were never anything of the sort. But immigration not only caused cultural and religious tensions, it also created a lot of economic tensions. Okay, now the labor market was obviously flooded with hundreds of thousands of new people. And of course, now I'm speaking of all of New England. Uh, And of course, with the Industrial Revolution gaining steam at the same time, 1830s and forward, 
these waves of immigrants simply provided an obvious and uh, obvious source of very cheap labor. All right. And it didn't take the factory and large business owners very long to learn what type of a temperament and mentality was best suited for the tasks of repetitive, monotonous factory labor. They wanted someone who was accustomed to repetition, accustomed to schedules. They wanted monotony, quiet obedience, single file lines. Okay, are we getting the picture here? Does this sound familiar? And these wealthy influences in society learned very quickly that they could steer public education uh, to produce such education, uh, to produce such workers. So the third factor in all this is the, in the loss of liberty was the rise of big business and corporations, particularly the influence of industrialization and factory style mechanization. Uh, not only does this pertain to the loss of liberty experienced, but more importantly, through this period, it pertains to the normalization of a life in which that liberty was gone. Okay, the mass production of public education itself became the tool by which America grew adapted to a life without freedom and education, in which the question was really never raised hardly ever again. Now, here is where the issue of modernization and the Industrial Revolution come in. And like I said, there is some truth, albeit very limited, uh, to this phenomenon, uh, requiring changes in society. But here is the important qualification. The phenomenon itself didn't require political changes. It didn't require new laws and coercion and compelling people. But rather, the big businesses found it profitable to ally with big government and leverage government power, just as the Unitarian ideologues had done for their agenda, in order to start mass producing workers to meet the demand for factory labor. Okay? Soon the schools were mass producing workers in the same way that the fa factories themselves were producing widgets. And the atmosphere of public schooling was the perfect place for this. Uh, because of the type of training and methodologies that were, that were used. Uh, and one example of that is written by Charles Francis Adams, Jr., who was an educational reformer, uh, grandson or great-grandson of, of the Adams family, John Quincy Adams and whatnot. Uh, and he wrote this looking back on the educational development up until 1880. And he says this, uh, Most of you, indeed, cannot but have been part and parcel of one of those huge mechanical educational machines or mills, as they might properly be called. They are, I believe, peculiar to our own time, our own country, and are so organized as to combine as nearly as possible the principal characteristics of the cotton mill and the railroad with those of the model state's prison. The school committee is the board of directors, while the superintendent, who is the chief executive officer, sits in his central office with the timetable, which he calls a program, uh, by which one hour twice a week is allotted to this study and half an hour three times a week to that, and 20 hours a term to a third. And at such a time, one class will be at this point and the other class at that point, and the whole moving with military precision to a given destination at a specified date. Okay. He can at any moment uh, tell you exactly where any squad or class, uh, as he would term it, is and what it ought at least to be doing. Mechanical methods could not be carried further. The organization is perfect 
The machine works almost with the precision of clockwork. It is, however, company front all the time. From one point of view, children are regarded as automatons. From another, as India rubber bags. From a third, as so much raw material. They must move in step and exactly alike. They must receive the same mental nutrient in, in equal quality, quantities and at fixed times. Assimilation is wholly immaterial, but the motions must be gone through with uh, finally, as raw material, they are emptied into the pri uh, primaries and marched out at the grammar schools. And it is well. And he should have added on that, by the way, that after the graduation, they're duly corralled and marched right into the industrialized workforce uh, because those kids had been trained for the past several years now under that system to live a lifestyle of boring repetition from one whistleblowing to the next. Horace Mann had been, had been interested in education for the perfectibility of man, uh, but the industrialists couldn't care less about perfectibility. They only cared about the trainability of man. And that legacy of pool public schools, as anyone can tell you, has been with us ever since. There is, by the way, much truth in Adam's comparison to, of the public schools to not only mills and railroads, but to the state prison. I want to highlight that. The same uniform, uh, Unitarian uh, reforming spirit that gave us the institution of public schools also produced in the same era the penitentiary, the insane asylum, and the poorhouse. Okay? And all of those were built on the exact same theory derived directly from their religion, secular religion, that society was the bed of corruption and the proper way to train people was to put them into a controlled atmosphere uh, in which these allegedly corrupt external influences could not affect them. And this very popular theory, at least among those elites, was applied to the reform of criminals, to the curing of the insane and the mentally ill, to the helping of the poor, and to the education of children. So in the same decades of the 1820s and 30s, this nation witnessed uh, somewhat of an explosion, relatively speaking, of institutions, official institutions, for all of these issues, and the growing prevalence of using taxation and government control for all of them appeared about the same time. And yet, as the decades went on, it became very clear that the theory on which it was founded was bogus. No genuine reform was made in criminals. Uh, no help was given to the insane that was lasting. Uh, corporate interests had come in and dominated the school systems. So in short, the whole thing was a failure and really a fraud. And the officials merely continued to blame the failure, again, on the lack of funds or on the need for greater control. All right, and this was true so much so that uh, of the few historians of the asylum phenomenon, uh, the one who really, really went through it made this conclusion that, quote, failure and persistence went hand in hand. Okay, and yet at the same time, when correctional institutions were failing, the advocates merely shifted their emphasis from the cure to the prevention. And that meant that let's put all of our focus on public education instead of the penal and the remedial institutions. And this was used then uh, as an argument for greater government involvement in support of education, and it was just compounded through the, the decades, really. And yet, finally, 
on top of all of this, all these major factors, Americans began to abandon home and private education uh, for a variety of factors, of course, uh, but also mainly due to the illusion that government schools were free. All right, now this creates different levels of motivation in different people. Uh, some buy into the illusion completely. And we hear the schools, oh, it's totally free. It doesn't cost me anything. And it educates my children, and it's done by experts, and it simultaneously provides childcare during the day. Okay, now so uh, people who swallow that illusion, of course, are usually people who don't own property. Because if they did, they would see directly the property taxes coming out that it's not free. Uh, so that's, that's one explanation to that. Uh, and since property taxes usually escrowed automatically anyway, most people really don't feel the true weight of it as it comes. Other people live content with the illusion. Now, they know it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a costly scheme, that it actually costs money. Uh, they, they know they actually have to pay taxes to, to cover it even if it's only indirectly through perhaps increased rents or something of that nature. And yet they accept this as moral or at least practical enough to live with or perhaps even as a necessary evil. Uh, but these people too, once they're receiving the benefits themselves, then learn to defend the system which taxes other people to benefit them. Even among public officials who know better, and in fact, I don't know if they can even legally, legally call it free, simply free, and get away with it, uh, but they simply modify the phrase to remain deceptive. And, that, and it's this, public education is free, quote, at the point of delivery, which of course is an admission that it's not free. Okay, now all of these things, all these factors work together to make the perceived benefit of free education powerful motivation among those who are dependent upon the system. They remain self-interested in perpetuating a system that confiscates property uh, from some people, gives it to others. And, and really, once they're dependent, they become advocates. Okay? And yet the system, used and defended by so many conservatives and Christians, is based on an anti-Christian, socialistic system of values that goes against everything those people believe in. So how was the liberty lost in the area of education? Well, it was through this combination of factors. It was through anti-Christian ideology, leveraging state power to impose a state-funded, state-controlled utopia. Uh, they established a whole new secular state church in the name of getting rid of a state church. Uh, it was to on top of that, it was through mass immigration that, among other things, sparked some misguided Protestants to use government power to oppose Catholicism and turn Americans into Europeans. I'm sorry, turn Europeans into Americans. Um, it was through the rise of the industrialization and mechanization, the use of mass production and education to create these dutiful, reliable masses of workers for mass production in factories. And it was through the vastly accepted myth that schools are free. And the fact that we now grow vastly dependent upon that benefit has compounded all of these factors. Okay, these things all combined together create this powerful culture in which freedom in education is gone economically. I mean, we're all forced to pay for public schooling even if we don't use it. Uh, and it's, the freedom is gone almost totally 
except in small enclaves. And that was true up until really the past few decades. All right, here's the hope. Many Christians and others realizing the need to reclaim our freedom in education. Many are already practicing it as much as they can. And the tools and resources to make it viable, make it effective, make it easy, are so easy, so vast today, you can find them anywhere. There's really no good excuse for anyone who loves liberty not to pursue it in the original American way. Now, as I've already said repeatedly, this is the one area you can change drastically toward the cause of freedom right now. Nothing toward that cause will be easier, will be more effective, and will be more life-transforming for everyone involved than restoring freedom for yourself and family in the area of education. And in the next talk, I'll tell you what to do, how to do it, and the sacrifices it's going to take.